Welcome back, guys. This is the regular season finale of Aki Hoops Weekly, and we're here to take you through the last two weeks of the regular season. It was a one and three grind that by the end felt a little like a mercy killing. And we're here to walk you through the carnage. We're going to talk about the upcoming SEC tournament. And once and for all, Blake and I are going to decide what's going to happen with Billy Kennedy. Let's roll. Welcome to Aggie Hoops Weekly. I'm Blake, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend David, and we are here to review the end of the regular season. The Aggies finished the 2018-2019 campaign with a 13-17 overall record, 6-12 in conference, and they finished in the 11 seed for the SEC tournament. David, Last year, we had a lot of fun looking forward to the NCAA tournament. We knew that we had an exciting run at the end of the season. This one was a a bit more of a grind just to get through the end of the year. How are you feeling at this juncture? Well, I'll open with the obvious, Blake, which is that anytime you're playing in the opening night of the SEC tournament, that's unacceptable. That Wednesday night, that 11 through 14, uh, those two games that comprise of the 11 through 14 seeds, that's a jester show. That's just a game designed to get two of the four worst teams out while the other two limp meekly along to meet their demise at some other round, right? If if you find yourself playing on Wednesday night, you've had an unacceptable season and we're playing on Wednesday night. So I can't open anywhere else where the 11 seed being 11 out of 14 teams just isn't that good. Uh, I usually use the other part of this opening riff to talk about what I've learned this week. I haven't learned anything this week. We beat the one bad team we played. We lost to the three good teams we played. And that pretty much aligns with what we've seen all year. And we're going to touch on those stats later. But we just kind of slotted into this this natural position as being a pretty bad team. We were better than the absolute worst teams in the conference. But that's about the best I can say for us this year. We slotted into this weird position where we were actually decent against the, the bottom half of the conference. But once you got out of the dregs of the SEC, once you got into the top flight competition... We just couldn't hang, and it was pretty obvious that we couldn't hang at that level. All right, Blake, so you're right, and I've got some numbers that are going to make this real, real quick. We were 6-3 and three against the bottom half of the SEC and 0-9 oh and against the top half. We didn't even pick one of those guys off. We quite literally could beat the teams around us, and we just didn't have a chance against the top flight in the conference. It's it's rare, you know, to in 18 conference games to not at least pick off a top half team once, but we were just never there. We really weren't, and you saw that this team was just overmatched against a lot of that competition. They managed to keep some of those games close and keep them respectable. Uh, there were very few blowouts in this conference season, but... You never felt like A&M legitimately threatened a lot of these teams down the stretch. You didn't. And I'm about to run through the four games since we last spoke. It's going to look and feel a lot like the, the things we just discussed. So three of the four teams we played were good. We lost those three games. One of the four we played was 0-18 Vanderbilt, and we won. So, it, you know, we just, down the stretch, we kind of, you know, you and I got a sense of what we were, and we just never deviated from that. Just a below average You know, 11th out of 14, it just feels almost exactly right for this team, doesn't it? It really does. So anyway, let's let's hit the the four games that were. And I'm going to start with a trip to, believe it or not, outright SEC champion LSU. How does that sound? That doesn't sound right, does it? That's they they weren't supposed to be anything special this year, but they were a dang good ball club. And never mind a recruiting scandal and a suspended head coach and suspended star player. But yeah, yeah, congratulations on a on a conference title. Hey man, I'd take it all. I'd take the whole package. <laughs> if if I had to check 
uh, those other three boxes in order to get the another SEC title box, I checked all four and say, yeah, vacated if you want. I was still there. <laughs> yeah, who am I kidding? I'd take it too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how many LSU basketball fans are truly upset right now, but so our, our trip to Baton Rouge went about as you'd expect. We were a below-average team who didn't have much to play for, and LSU had absolutely everything to play for, and the game just about played out like that. And this was, uh, Blake, just to remind you, this was a game where LSU was not playing with all SEC guard Tremont Waters didn't really matter. They were missing their star player out top, but they pounded us down low uh, to the tune of a 40 to 22 advantage points in the paint. And our offensive ball movement, which hasn't been much all year, was even bad by our standards. We had six assists in a 40-minute Division One basketball game, which is tough to do. It's tough to it's tough to score points and only get six assists. That means we were just not getting anything in terms of offensive flow. It was just you know every every point we scored was basically hero ball. But it was a game that was never close. So LSU won 66 to 55. And we followed that game up, so we went on the road to play the outright SEC champs. Then we came home to play 0-18 Vanderbilt. Quite a stark change there. And uh, it was senior night, and uh, I was happy that we did this on a Saturday. I've heard that that, that makes uh, much easier for the parents to come in, parents of the players, extended family of the players. So that's why we did it on Saturday, even though our last home game of the year was the following Tuesday. So we had senior night at home against Vanderbilt, and our team responded by coming out and falling behind 11 to zero and then falling behind 20 to eight. And I was sitting here watching this game in a cavernously empty Reed arena as we we're falling behind double digits to a winless team thinking this is rock bottom. This is what it feels like. You know, this feels, this might feel like home, but to the guy's credit, they did turn it around. I would say that turnaround was more aided by Vanderbilt kind of reverting to the form of an 0 and 18 team. That was kind of a bigger factor than us playing well and grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck, but call it what you will. A combination of those two things did eventually yield a 64 to 57 victory to us. So good job winning on senior night. I suppose uh, that win is more about avoiding disaster than it is about making a statement, but good enough on that sense. Uh, But Blake, before I get to the final week of the season, anything that jumped out to you about this one-on-one week? No, I think it went about as expected. You knew that A&M really didn't have much of a prayer against LSU. The game was actually closer in the end than than it really seemed to be. Uh, A&M picked up some points in garbage time and, and made it a little bit closer. It had been a little bit bigger of a lead there for LSU. But Credit to the Tigers. That's a good ball club over there. Will Wade had that team playing really well. I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with those guys in the NCAA tournament. There's so much turmoil and so much in flux with that group that it's going to be really interesting to see what happens from there. Vandy was such a white-knuckle ride. And, hmm. and I want to say that I didn't expect it, but in the back of my mind, I kind of did. It's tough to get up for games at the end of the season, especially against an 0-18 team. Really, at this point, I think the the shock kind of settled in for the Aggies, and they figured out, oh, God, we're about to be the, the one that prevents Vanderbilt from going with a perfect winless record in conference play. I know. And they finally pulled it together a little bit. Like you said, it wasn't like Aggies seized the game. It was more that, that Vanderbilt just did their Vandy thing. But they played better. The Aggies played better in the second half and and, and did capitalize on, on the mistakes that Vandy made and pulled out a win. So you're always happy to get one on senior night and let those guys go out with, with a little bit of a celebration at home in front of friends and family. And this is precisely where the, the happy vibes and the celebration part of the podcast ends because now we're going to dive into the last week of the season, which was nothing short of a bloodbath. Like I mentioned, uh, the senior night game against Vanderbilt was actually not our final home game. We did welcome South Carolina to town. 
And this is a South Carolina team that you may recall, Blake, and to the listeners out there, they've been flirting in and around the top four of the SEC all year. So you might hear a, a team like South Carolina coming to town and think, man, they're fighting for their NCAA lives. They're going to need everything out of this game. You know, They're going to have so much more motivation. That might be something we struggle to come up against. The truth is that South Carolina had lost their last three coming into this game. They were injury depleted. Their terrible, terrible, terrible non-conference slate had rendered them literally out of the NCAA bracketology. You just couldn't even find them anywhere in a in a March Madness preparation article. And I mean, they were done. They were as done as we were. And in that context, that team came into Reed Arena and beat us by 17. They had eight more threes in the first half, which when added to their 16 from their victory against us earlier in the year, we had to wonder, like, what did we do to wrong these guys in a prior life? They just, they've, been, they've been white hot against us for the entire season. Uh, but we actually played okay in the first half. We stayed within five. It was a 39-34 South Carolina lead at the half. Part that bothers me, Blake, is that in our last half of the year at Reed Arena, we didn't we didn't care, man. It was awful down the stretch in this game against South Carolina. We scored 20 points in the second half, and it wasn't just that we scored 20. We just didn't really seem to mind that we weren't really putting up a fight in this game. So South Carolina, as you might expect, they pulled away. It was a 71-54 to win in Reed Arena. Blake, this is a stat you will hear from me all offseason. It was our sixth loss at home by 15 or more. Mm. Six. That's rough. Unacceptable 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 uh, case in point 0 and 18 Vanderbilt they didn't have that many home losses by 15 or more they actually believe it or not had kept a decent amount of their home games close so uh, I got one final thing to leave you with if you were a an A&M basketball enthusiast and you bought a ticket to either an SEC game uh, the K-State game or the Texas Southern game if you put those those 11 games in a pool and you pick one of those 11 out you had a greater than 50% chance of seeing us get our ass kicked. And that was the reality for A&M basketball fans this year. And that's why the attendance absolutely plummeted is because so many of our terrible, terrible performances were all at home. Yeah. And so this, this was a fitting way to end, you know, not, not that I enjoyed it, but it made sense that the, that the home slate ended this way. And by the end, and I wrote about this and and I tweeted this, it was a mercy killing of the home slate. It was just get this thing over with. Let's get out of here. So it was a sad, sad state of affairs. It will not be the last time you hear me talk about that. But 7154 was was the last home game of the year. Yeah, that attendance against South Carolina, the official listed attendance was 5,032 people. And you know that with those types of situations, they're counting tickets sold, not actual butts and seats. So I, I'm willing to bet that that was probably closer to 3,500, if that. Yes, it's a weeknight game, but for your last home game in conference play, uh, that's that's not a good look. But once again, to your point, when you don't turn in solid performances at home, that that's kind of the support you're rewarded with. I will only add uh, the phrase, I get it. I understand. I understand why people stopped coming, and I don't blame them. And I will leave it at that. The final game, Blake, was a road trip to Mississippi State team that was in the thick of the NCAA hunt. It was a game they had to have. You know, we're playing out the string at this point. Uh, we did play well offensively in this game. And I would say, uh, now I'm interested to get your take on this, it, it ended up feeling like the games we played against Kentucky, against Florida, against Tennessee, uh, where we played well, we had energy. We scored points in bushels, but we just couldn't get a stop anywhere. And that was what we ran up against time and time and time again. When we had less talent on the floor, uh, we were just getting blown away on the defensive end. And that's what happened again uh, on Saturday. Mississippi State just scored at will. And we had guys who had good performances, and we'll talk about this later. But we had guys who played well. Shout out to Mark French getting 10 points. That was a fun little wrinkle. But 
we didn't really push Mississippi State. They were never truly uncomfortable. And we closed the regular season with a 92-81 defeat in Starkville. Like you said at the outset, 6-12, and 11th out of 14. Not really sure what else to say. Yeah, I think that the, the term that keeps coming to my mind, and even before we talked, and you've, you've mentioned this word multiple times, it was really just a merciful end to this campaign. At this point, I think we're all glad it's over. And, and I hate feeling that way. And if we feel that way, imagine how, you know, we're on the on the front edge of the people who care about A&M basketball. So if, if we've finally been beaten down to that point, how does everybody else feel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the scary part, right? How does everyone else feel? How does generic public supporter of, of Texas A&M stomach a, a season like this when there's bigger and better things going on? You've got a baseball team that's getting off to a really hot start. You know, everybody's excited for year two with Jimbo. What what is there to invest in at this point with Aggie basketball? So it, it's oh, it's a we tough. We will look. revisit that point. We will. That's a great point and one that I intend to circle back on. But and you're you're absolutely right. So let's hit some of the overall thoughts. We've we've talked about the four games in in detail. Well, let's talk about some of the some of the higher level things that happened in the last couple of weeks. First of which is that we lost T.J. Starks in that LSU game, and as a result, we did not have him for the final three games, and he has been since ruled out for the remainder of the season. It was a pretty gnarly shoulder injury he picked up on a drive to the bucket. He didn't play the rest of that game. Uh, He's since, I believe, Blake had successful surgery on that shoulder, and I don't think he's expected to miss any time next year, but it was was a significant injury, and it it impacted our backcourt pretty good. Um, And what did you notice about the guys coming off the bench? Because Starks had slotted nicely into that... Uh, the six-man role in, in the two or three weeks preceding that injury. So what did you notice about our roster construction and kind of our rotations once that injury occurred? The immediate things you see in the box scores is, is the emergence of Mark French's name. That was something that you, you had mentioned. Uh, Mark got got some pretty solid minutes those last few games. JJ actually picked up quite a few minutes. Wendell Mitchell was playing 40 minutes. Savion Flag playing 40 minutes. I mean, coming down the stretch... It was it was interesting to see how Billy just kind of leaned on those guys, especially against South Carolina in that game. Chuck Mitchell and Savion both played forty minutes, and it was just un- mm. I was really surprised that, that you had both those guys in there, considering that that South Carolina had that game pretty well in hand. But I, I think that that was just a function of Kennedy realizing that that's what he had to do to get through this through this stretch. Mahan actually kind of kind of reasserted himself into the rotation a little bit more. I, I don't know that that was necessarily a good thing. He was he was a bit cold. You know, we we've talked about how Brandon Mahan can be a streaky shooter, and he was definitely on the 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 bad end of the streak. He really struggled down the stretch this season uh, from from behind the arc, but. You just you missed that explosiveness. You missed what Starks brought to this team. I think you and I both felt like his change in role late in the year to coming off the bench was actually a real positive. And I think that it was really a catalyst that spurred this team to that that stretch of five wins in seven games. I think that a lot of that had to do with with TJ coming off the bench and providing that change of pace. Yes, we were playing against bad competition, but at the same time, I think a lot of those games could have gone the other way, and I think A&M could have found themselves with 
two or three fewer wins in conference play had they not made that switch to bring TJ off the bench and, and leverage Mitchell in the way that they did. So, you know, not having TJ there, I, I don't think it makes this team better in any capacity. We talk about how he does create challenges for you. He does create turnovers. And, and AM's turnovers in the last four games of the season actually dropped pretty significantly, where we had been averaging about 17, 18 turnovers a game. I think over these last four games, we averaged something like 10 turnovers, 11 turnovers a game. So you definitely see the impact in the stat sheet, but it's it's both a positive and a negative impact in, in that sense that you miss his scoring. You miss his ability to attack the rim. Yeah, you're not turning the ball over as much, but you don't have that same depth, and, and it definitely showed. It did, and I think we're going to have an interesting season of tape to show Starks because I think I think when we look at this season and when we break it down kind of over the next nine months, we're going to see two things, and I hope that TJ sees two things. One, that I think he's better deployed in the role you just described, but two, how much better we look when he passes the ball. He is a good passer, and I don't think he likes passing, but when he really commits to that role, we look good, and I just wonder if we hammer that home over the course of an entire offseason, can we see a different guy next year? Because, I mean, Blake, we saw it time and time and time again. We saw him flip the switch when he wanted to, but I think the dude just likes scoring and he likes he likes driving. He gets caught up in the mano y mano of, of you know if another guard's playing well against us. But man alive, with with the way he can break people down off the dribble, if he commits to life as a passer, I really, really, really think he could he could blow up next year. So yeah, I hope that we are able to take some of the positives from his season and turn that into kind of his full-time role next year. And to your original point, I think there's a chance we don't see him start another game on campus. I think we, there's a chance that we just commit to that role that fully and say, look, man, we'll still give you 32 minutes a game just for whatever reason. It seems to work better when you don't start. I think there's a chance we land there. I think it's a possibility. A lot of it depends on TJ and his level of maturity and how much he grows between this year and next. If he shows that ability to become more of a, a past first player, then maybe maybe you see him slot back into a starting role. But with Chuck Mitchell on campus, I don't you don't need him in that starting role. And I think it's really up to TJ to grow and mature and show that he's capable and ready to play in a starting role. So I, yeah, I think it's like you said, there's a, there's a distinct possibility that he could be coming off the bench for the rest of his career. That's not a terrible thing. There's a lot of guys in the in the NBA who have had incredible careers as as sixth men, and that that's a great role to fill. But to your point, I'm I mean, he loves to score the ball. He loves having the ball in his hands. If I had that explosive first step, I'd love to have the ball in my hands too, and I'd be taking everybody to the rim every chance I got. But at some point, you have to realize that there's a law of diminishing returns. So. You just hope that he can grow and mature in the offseason and realize what happens when he can break people down off the dribble and then facilitate for others rather than insisting that he has to finish. On the other end of that spectrum, one of the guys who I think, and we've talked about this in in the last several weeks, but Savion Flagg has really just cemented himself as the go-to contributor for this team. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it's offensively, defensively, rebounding, whatever, Savion's going to take care of it, and and he's going to put forth the effort, and he's going to produce. What are your thoughts on Savion having this sophomore campaign that we've seen from him? 
He's my team MVP. So I'll start with that. I think he was, to your point, he was our most consistent player. He played a ton of minutes and he answered the bell every night and he continued to improve. He picked up our only major award of the year when he grabbed that SEC Player of the Week award uh, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he was our rock. So team MVP, give it to him. That That's that's what I'll open with. I will note that even though he played pretty well in the last three games of the year, that game at LSU was interesting because he came into that game with some legitimate publicity. That was his next game after winning SEC Player of the Week. He was kind of like the lead bill from our end, right? It was like Savion Flag, current SEC Player of the Week, you know, hits the road against number 12 LSU. That was kind of how it was billed. And he did not really hold up in that specific scenario. So, you know, I still don't think, despite all of his improvements and how good of a player he has been and how I honestly feel how Savion Flagg can be a starter on a very, very good team, he's still not an A1 option. And I don't know if he's ever going to be that, but that LSU game was kind of an interesting little one-game kind of microscopic look at, well, here's how Savion Flagg, when the bullseye is on him for that 40 minutes, and he wasn't there that night. So I think suffice it to say that he came a long way, but there's still there's still more improvement that that, that can be made. Yeah, I, I think there is still a bit of inconsistency to his game from time to time, but it it's definitely more infrequent than than we were afraid it would be. I think we were concerned that it would be this wild swing of 21 points one game and two points the next. He's been pretty consistent overall for the most part. I think that you've seen that from him. Yeah, he'll, he has a tendency to, to have a couple of, I won't say games that he takes off, but games that he just doesn't, doesn't play well. But overall, I, I think he's, he's been the best player on this team and the most consistent. Chuck Mitchell, to his credit, has come in and, and played exceptionally well. I've been really pleased with what he's offered the team. He's actually just ahead of Savion as the leading scorer, but it's everything else that Savion gives you from a rebounding perspective, you know, from an assist perspective. Savion has just really improved and really evolved this year, and I'm looking forward to see what he does next year. As good as Savion has been and as good as Mitchell has been, perhaps the most prevalent thing that this team has struggled with this year has been three-point shooting. It started out bad, and it really never got better throughout the year. This team is just atrocious from behind the line. So they are, and what makes it all the more confusing is that that's what we hung our hat on in the preseason. Uh, you, you might recall uh, listeners and, and, and re- GBH readers and anyone who followed the program really at any level in the offseason – we trumpeted this move to a fast-paced seven seconds or less. Take the take the first good shot you get. You know we're going to be bombs away because we had you know like seven guards and three forwards basically at that point. So that's what we felt we we needed to do. But we kind of forgot that we needed shooters in order to accomplish that. And time and time and time again, the three-point shooting just wasn't there. Uh, so much so that actually the games where we had success were was when we just abandoned it. You know, the games where we only took 10 or 12 threes and just forced our way into the lane and, and yeah, gave the big guys as many offensive touches as we could. That's where we found success. So I'm afraid to ask Blake, but just how bad are the season ending numbers? I know they're bad, but just hit me with a crossbar across the face. Just let, just let me have it. Oh, are you sure? <laughs> this is really bad. I'm not sure, but a- a- I'm a- not. <laughs> a- M- finished the year shooting 30.5% from behind the arc. That is good enough for 333rd in the country. If you know the statistics, there are only 353 teams 
in Division I basketball. At this point, Texas A&M only had 20 teams shoot the ball worse from three-point land than the Aggies. It's brutal. It really was a brutal year from behind the arc. And ironically, we, we talked about how streaky Mayhem can be. He actually statistically was AM's best three-point shooter. He finished the year shooting 37% from three. But at the at this point, that's kind of like being the skinniest kid in fat camp because yeah. <laughs> there was there just wasn't a lot there. Chuck Mitchell was right behind him, I think, at about 35%. But it just this team really struggled behind the arc. And it, it just never really changed. We had pockets where we would shoot up to 40%, but man alive, we were bad just about every game. So yeah, that was a huge, it was a huge part of our, of our failure. But the part that, again, that I can't get over is that the coaching staff came out of this preseason and said, this is what we're going to be. So was there just a, a giant disconnect between what, what we were in practice and what happened on game days? Or, you know, what other possible explanation could there be for this highly publicized move to a, you know, a, a four guard shoot everything you can lineup? I, I just don't understand. Comparing that to the actual results just really doesn't land for me. It really doesn't. And I think it speaks to our next topic. Knowing that, that this team made that switch this year, yes, it may have been a little bit out of necessity, but you look at how things turned out in, in this season this is Billy Kennedy's eighth season and six times he's finished outside of the NCAA tournament. At this point, you have to wonder what are his chances of returning next year? So I'm going to be honest, Blake. I think his chances are slim to none. I think his chances of returning are predicated on winning the SEC tournament. It's, this might surprise you that my reasoning for this is more business-based than it is basketball-based. Now, we, we've gone over his ups and downs as a coach for the entirety of this season, but the part that I think will really land with our athletic department is just how bad our attendance was down the stretch. So those Vandy and South Carolina games, getting 4,000, 3,500, you know, 5,000 announced, you know, 3,000 butts and seats for those last two games. Us just not moving the needle at all compared to baseball as we come down, you know, the stretch towards March Madness. Scott Woodward, he's a smart guy. He knows what the financials can look like when men's basketball is rolling. He cannot have this be the jumping off point for next year's basketball team. So that's part one of, of, of my opinion. Part two is that the Billy Kennedy contract situation is not exactly straightforward. He's only got two years left, which means this is not a decision of whether to retain or whether to refire. It's a decision of whether to extend or whether to fire. In the college basketball recruiting world, you can't send a guy out there to recruit who only has one year left on his deal. You're asking him at that point to recruit with two hands tied behind his back and you risk doing some long-term damage to your program. We can't just keep him. We've got to extend him. So in that context of a a program with, I would say, Blake, less interest in an upcoming season since maybe 2002, I, I, I can't think of a, of a year that has less interest in the upcoming college basketball season. So in the context of that fan interest and that program interest, in the context of the fact that there's just not butts in the seats, in the context of you have to extend him if you want to keep him, I just can't see how someone could look at this fact pattern and say, we have to extend this guy. So that's where I land. I'm interested in your take because I think you're not quite as black and white about it as I am. I'm not. And it's not that I I don't want Kennedy gone. It's just I think that there's a the door is open a little bit more. I think there's mitigating circumstances that could be called into play here. The Admon Gilder injury was it was a huge factor. Uh, the fact that 
it could be sold that Hogue and Davis leaving early was somewhat unexpected and something that, that kind of took this team by surprise and they weren't prepared for. But I, I, they clearly didn't have time to adapt in terms of personnel to, to losing those guys. I don't think that those things will play that big of a part in the end. I hope they don't. I wouldn't give them that much weight in the decision. I think that there's an established track record here. And you and I are both on, on the same boat on, on where we think this program is headed, uh, which, mm-hmm. is, which is mediocrity at best. I do agree with your assertion that you really have the the least momentum that Aggie basketball has had since probably the 2002-2003 time frame, somewhere in there. Yes, Kennedy had a string of four seasons without making the tournament early on in his tenure here, but you had a, a heralded recruiting class coming in in the form of DJ Hogue and Admon Gilder and Tyler Davis that everyone recognized, hey, there's some real talent coming in. This year's class coming in is decent. They're they're not a terrible class. They're actually an okay class, but they're not the heralded class that that, that group of guys was four years ago. So in that sense, I don't think that there's a, a lot going for Kennedy in that in in that term. But if you made me assign a number to it, I would put it at maybe about a 25 to 30% chance that he returns next year. If he wanted to improve his stock, he really needed at least one more win in the last two weeks. I think that a 6-12 and 12 conference mark looks significantly worse than a 7-11. I don't know why that is, but I think that there's something about hitting that 33% plateau in conference play just, just really is unpalatable. So I do agree with your assertion that short of winning the SEC tourney, maybe getting to the to the to the tournament final, I don't see there's much of a chance of of Billy Kennedy improving his stock overall for for a, a long term extension. It's hard to see anything significant happening on that front in the in this last week. So, so you're you're right, Blake, and I do agree with large portions of what you're saying, which I think underlines what. I alluded to earlier in that we are we're on the same side of the argument and there's just a few shades of gray between us because I agree it hasn't been straightforward and you brought up a good point uh, regarding his his path to these eight years right it hasn't exactly been straightforward uh, people talk about him making it two out of the eight years but you know there's been some good and bad kind of mixed in it hasn't been just it wasn't like he made the tournament in his first two years and then didn't make it for the following six there's been it's been an interesting path and if you look at the way it's all broken down there haven't been that many great chances to fire him. And we're going to talk about this in more detail later, but it kind of, I kind of understand at some level how he's made it this far. Um, so yeah, I think you and I agree on, on, on his career here. We agree on the next move. I think there's a higher chance that it happens than you do. Maybe it sounds like, but we, we are generally on the same side of the fence on this one. So with that being said, let's look at the SEC tournament and the road that the Aggies would face to somehow backdooring themselves into the NCAA tournament by getting an automatic bid. So let's talk about it. We're going to start with the Wednesday night trash showdown against <laughs> against Vanderbilt, which is a trickier draw than you might expect because the SEC tournament is played in Nashville. So that's going to be an effective home game for Vanderbilt. I don't know how many people they're going to draw given their 0-18 record, but... 
even though it's built as a home game, we will likely have a far, far smaller amount of support. So that's our game against, uh, that's our opener on Wednesday night. If we win that one, we will play Mississippi State again, who just rolled us fairly comfortably. So that will be our next game. Uh, at that point, we start hitting the big guns, barring any upset. I think like we would have to play either Kentucky. We'd probably play Kentucky in the semi at that point if we were to beat Mississippi State. If we get past Mississippi State, we get we would play Tennessee in the quarters and then would play Kentucky or... Kentucky and LSU if, if the seedings held. Right, exactly. So just to recap, we would need to win five games in five days without much depth and against teams that for the most part we haven't had any success against all year. So let's do it. What do you think, yeah, right? Yeah. Let's just do it. Let's, I, let's go do it. <laughs> exactly. If I, I'd like to see the Vegas odds on that one. No, my uh my serious prediction is that we beat Vanderbilt and we lose to Mississippi State and that you and I are talking on Thursday night about the end of the season. Yeah, I think that that's the most logical conclusion. I, I really once again I hope that the first Vanderbilt game served as a wake-up call for this team. You don't want to be the group of guys that that allows a team that went winless in conference play to pick up their one win, whether it's in the conference tournament or not. Hopefully they'll come out motivated and and at least pick up this this win and get to the second round, uh, get out of the the garbage night and save a little dignity for themselves. <laughs> I do hope they beat Vanderbilt. That's like the old uh, Matrix meme, like not like this. That's I don't want us to go down like that. Let's handle business against Vanderbilt and then let the chips fall where they may. And then you and I will talk and we'll, we'll clean up the mess at that point. Sounds good. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you next week and, and we'll clean it up and we'll see where we land. Funny thing about the SEC tournament is we have no idea how many games we'll be discussing. So we'll just let the chips fall. We'll talk afterwards and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.